Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Started the first year on the anniversary of Michael's disappearance. Um, was started by a, a friend of ours, and we just we continued doing it, and we'll continue to do it um, um, as long as people continue to come out and help support help for missing children. That sound is from one of the annual Keep the Hope Alive runs. They're held each year in Michael's memory. And year after year, hundreds of people turn out to support the Dennehy family and to bear witness to the tragedy that still lingers over the community. It takes a village to raise a child. And it takes a village to survive the loss of a child. Missing Michael is actually two stories. One is a true crime chronicle of the Dunahy disappearance and the investigation. In this episode, I begin to consider specific suspects. But the other story, the story at the heart of Missing Michael, is about the ways in which Michael touched so many lives, and about the people at the centre of that story. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Island Crime Season 3, Missing Michael. Lorraine Cuthbert and Harold Picken are Michael's godparents. Crystal and I are best friends. I was her maid of honor. She actually had me be Michael's godmother. Um, Bruce is a longtime friend of mine. Michael is, is my godson. Oh, we, are, we go back to kindergarten. My, my dad was in the military, and we, he was, we were stationed in, uh, in Esquimalt. So that's how we met. Lorraine moves away from the island. So does Harold. But their friendships with Bruce and Crystal transcend distance and time. They're rooted in shared experiences, cemented in life's milestones. What do your friends do? You go, you go fishing, you know, you go, you go to parties, you have you share birthdays, you share uh, anniversaries. We did sports. We were, we uh, played lacrosse. We're always on the phone. Even, you know, we were always on the phone together. We're like two old women, I guess you could say. So when I wasn't over there personally, we were always, you know, we were always on the phone talking about work and sports and, and you know, hockey and stuff. Oh, we're both diehard Bruins fans. Yes, we are. Uh, Bruce is a nice guy. I was in his wedding party. Yeah. He put a, he put a suit on me. And he was, he was, in, yeah, he was my best man at my wedding. Lorraine fondly recalls happy memories from Bruce and Crystal's church wedding and reception. She remembers Crystal giving birth to Michael before she had her boy. I can remember flying home after I had given birth to my son and brought him with me and met up with Crystal and Michael and I had given him a birthday present and I told him he could open. He was so excited at the table in the restaurant and he's playing with it and he's like oh mommy do I have to give this back and I said no I said Auntie Lorraine bought that for you it's for you to take home and he's like oh thank you he was just so polite 
And then Crystal came to my mom's house for a visit and he wanted to hold the baby. So we propped him up in a chair and, and we gave him Kevin and he's holding him and he's looking at him. He said, mommy, I want a baby like this, but I want the, I want the girl kind. <laughs> I want the sister kind. <laughs> it was just, it was cute. That's actually the last time I got to see him. Just a playful little kid, like most little kids, happy, always giving her, you know, always, always getting in, I don't know, mischievous, but like most kids that age, they're, they're busy, I guess you could say. And then, on March 24th, 1991, both Lorraine and Harold receive phone calls from the island with news that is hard to believe. He's disappeared. They're not sure what's happened, if he's wandered off. Uh, they're searching for him. We'll let you know when we know more. So that's pretty much all I've been told. I'm ready to get on a plane and go back to Victoria. And my late husband said to me, and where are you going to look? I said, I don't know, but I'm just going to go look. My mom called me and I bolted over and I went over there all around right away. My wife, Heidi, said, I just got up and left. And I just, just dropped everything and went over there as soon as I could. I just remember chaos, and it's sort of it's sort it's sort of clouded at the time. You know, there was there was so much going on. It was pretty hard to really put it all together. Like definitely, I was there. To, I was there not not so much hold his hand, but be be there, be his friend. Oh, visibly shaken. You know, not sleeping. You know, wondering what the hell's going on. A lot of crying. That's for sure. At the time of Michael's disappearance, Lorraine lives far away in Alberta. She can't be there, but she still clearly recollects the toll it takes on her friend. It's hard. Um, you know, I look at Crystal and all I see when I see her is permanent red eyes. It's just, it's tough. And even all these years later, <laughs> they never let me speak at the runs because she knows I'll cry. <laughs> so I never have. It's just, I don't know, it's just still so emotional. And I know it, you know, it's 30 years, but it's still like yesterday. Harold calls to mind trying to be there for his friend Bruce as time moves on. He, he would call me any time of the day, any time of the night if he was bothered. And I would and I'd pick up and we'd, we would just chat about everything. Oh, just talk to him, just be there for him, you know, any any moment of the day. You know, I remember the early days, he would always pull me on, my, on his birthdays, and, and it would be hard, and I would just listen. In the years ahead, Lorraine moves back to the island and tries to support Crystal through missed birthdays and Christmases. We still kept buying the birthday presents, the Christmas presents. They would just stack up, stack up, stack up in his room. And then slowly, it just, you know, you stop doing it, and you donate somewhere on his behalf instead, knowing full well that, you know, when we find him, we'll have the biggest present ever. The Dunahees are determined to keep the hope alive for Michael. They organize annual events in Michael's memory, dances, slow pitch tournaments, and of course, the Keep the Hope Alive run. It's really cold on the high street, so... People still care, mm. concerned. No. Well, people like this concerned and caring, we're going to find her soon. Just makes us have more confident we're going to find them. 
Yeah, no doubt you'll find him. Oh, yeah. No doubt find mine, no. He's, he's out there. He'll be returned to us. What keeps you going? People like these. Kids, parents, phone calls, we get letters. There's a lot of people out there that still care, and that keeps us going. Does. The first while, I went to all of them, and then as time went on, you know, there's times I couldn't get over there. And there was there was times that we just it, it was it hurt me to go over there because to see the to see the pain you know what I mean it's it, it, it's hard to see your friend like that I remember explaining that to Caitlin one day she says how come you don't come over all the time and I had to say it's too hard to see your dad being hurt well and Bruce blamed himself for years you know for Michael's disappearance he totally blamed himself they're just amazing people I draw strength off them every day. That's for sure. Still do. Keep the hope alive. That's what it's all about. You know, my heart keeps telling me he is out there somewhere. We'll find him. Bring him home. Somebody knows something. Somebody saw something that day, and they just don't realize they saw it. In 2006, Dr. Don Castaldi undertakes a review of the Dennehy case. It's at the request of Detective Al Cochran. He's provided with confidential and sensitive personal information to assist with his forensic analysis. I want to speak with him about this case. After some back and forth with the Victoria Police, he agrees to speak with me, provided I acknowledge that he is prohibited from speaking about file evidence, but can share his analysis based on the information I have gathered for the podcast. In his own words, here's how Dr. Castaldi became involved in Michael's case. I have a doctorate in clinical psychology uh, with a specialization in forensics. And in 2006, I was conducting a lot of trainings for police departments and polygraph examiners all around how to do interviewing and interrogation with sexual predators. Detective Al Cochran, who you heard from in the last episode, attends one of those training exercises. Al pulls Don aside and starts talking to him about the case. He thinks it could be helpful for Don to look at the file. And in May of 2006, Don is asked to take on a case and crime scene analysis, particularly around the time frames of 1991 all the way to 1999. Dr. Castaldi is cautious about overstating the assistance he can provide, describing media portrayals of crime scene analysis and profilers as grandiose. It's simply one tool to be utilized to be able to have fresh eyes, to be able to look at information, and hopefully to be able to provide some information that allows for some probative inferences. They had already had numerous, numerous investigators at the time being able to look at it, and they wanted to be able to have a different opinion, particularly from somebody who had worked a lot with um, sexual predators. He is given an executive summary of the investigation, essentially a review of what has been done. He's also able to ask questions and is shown evidence and information as it was required. The remarkable thing about this case is that even though you had the volumes and volumes of people involved and an incredible effort from an investigative standpoint, there still ends up being this really limited amount of physical and behavioral evidence. Um, the assessment actually ended up being more moved toward a threshold assessment. 
And a threshold assessment is simply that. It's very descriptive in that, in that language, in the sense that you are looking at what thresholds have been met by different aspects of the case to say that we have a defensible conclusion or we're able to actually make probative inferences based upon the crime scene behavior, based upon victimology, and so on. Victimology is an area I've focused on in prior seasons of violent crime. Understanding Michael and his world is central to Missing Michael. When you don't have physical and behavioral evidence, or your limited physical and behavioral evidence, then your greatest connection, greatest link to your offender ends up being your victimology profile. The detectives I've spoken with on Michael's case have described a process of excluding people in Michael's life. And that's something that Dr. Castaldi, too, believes is key. And when you end up having a four-year-old child, their parents become the catalyst and medium through which all relationships are formed and their interactions. So where you would, if somebody was an older victim, so let's say a teen or an adult, you would definitely provide, they would be the center of that profile. But when you end up having a four-year-old child whose world is being navigated by uh, parents, then they too become absolutely integrated into that victimology profile. And so not only is it about um, Michael and the people that he's interacted with, but also the parents and who they've interacted with become a part of that. So it becomes a very large circle. And when you end up having a, a child that is, um, it's been well stated that um, he was uh, supported by multiple people. So whether it be family or friends, um, babysitters, people within that general area that would be um, supporting him from time to time while the parents are working or doing other things. All those people also become um, a very essential and integral component of a victim profile. The majority of people are abused or assaulted or even abducted by people they know. And so Dr. Castaldi wants to understand how Michael engages with people he meets. Once you're able to look at all the people that are within, you know, surrounding uh, Michael as being the center and moving out there, then you can make that deductive reasoning as to, um, okay, then we're more likely to be a, um, a stranger situation versus the people involved. I think what happens is, is that uh, when you're doing those interviews and you're thinking about those people who are having contacts, it would seem that there is more people, uh, more effort that can be done in those areas that could be added to a victimology profile. If in such case that you have somebody who has maybe just doing babysitting for a short period of time and you end up in interviewing them and checking them out and you end up determining that they, um, you know, they have no criminal background, they don't seem to be of concern, they weren't even around that day, the opportunity wasn't there, things of that nature, we end up ruling them out. It's important to also consider who that person is also associating with. So for example, if let's say they had a boyfriend or a girlfriend that wasn't necessarily uh, largely known to other people. Let's say that person had a habit of you know, various vices in their life. And so they had contact with certain people, even if that contact with those people was for a short period of time, we'd wanna make sure or determine whether or not any sort of cross contact with people who might have an unfavorable background were present during a time in which Michael was present. Is it possible Michael's abductor exploited those relationships to build trust with Michael? It'd be valuable to understand 
his overall disposition around attachment styles. So how does he engage in relationships? How does he befriend new people? Uh, when we look at temperament, we we look at, you know, there's definitely, there's numerous um, sex offenders that I've worked with in the past that um, will, within a within a, a view, a cursory view, be able to identify a child that is much more accessible to abuse, manipulate, and move out of a space than another child based upon their disposition, how they present, um, what they're, you know, how, how well they're interacting with other people and what might be their vulnerabilities to coercion. When you end up having somebody who is being supported by multiple secondary caregivers, you end up learning and adapting how to um, adjust to the situation. And you might find yourself meeting a lot of people and having to adjust to new people just by virtue of being in those environments. So if I'm being supported at um, a babysitter's house or I'm in somebody else that's in the complex, anybody that interacts with me in those spaces, I learn to adjust and, and move and accommodate based upon those relationships. And I would want to be looking at offender grooming. And so a grooming is a process in which offender establishes rapport and trust with um, a child or a victim um, in order to be able to execute their offense. And so I would be wanting to know um, who he had contact with. You remember from a four-year-old perspective, if I see dad um, having a conversation with so-and-so and they have a quick little laugh about something and that person also ends up uh, being kind and befriends me with something, you know, lets me pet their dog or gives me something um, from a four-year-old perspective. Oh, that's a friend of dad's, right? Or that's a friend of mom's, or that's a friend of, you know, somebody that I know. And so this becomes the, the vulnerability that exists with a lot of child situations around stranger danger knowledge is that from the perspective of the four-year-old, is that person still a stranger if I've seen mom or dad um, briefly chatting with them? So what might have made Michael more vulnerable to an offender. Once again, from that victimology profile, what sort of factors make Michael potentially more vulnerable or accessible than other kids? And so understanding Michael and his behavior around other people, what would be important to know is um, in an interview is to what was Michael's attachment style and overall temperament um, and what was more potentially more powerful, stranger danger or adult direction, like compliance with adult direction. So if an adult used a firm voice or was very just kind of firm or, or, or corrective in their statement, would that end up superseding any sort of training or ongoing discussions around stranger danger? Dr. Castaldi has been given a roadmap of the investigation. After reviewing the case, here's how he views the period of time before Michael disappears. They literally pull up into the parking lot. He exits the vehicle, requests to go to the playground. The direction is, is that you can go to the playground, but don't leave with the other children that are at the playground. So there's a reference that there's children at the playground. Where their car is positioned to get to the playground, you have to go through a parking lot. Um, in order to, and a busy parking lot at this time. So there's teams that are finishing their game and then new ones arriving. What we can verify is him leaving the vehicle, heading through the parking lot toward the playground equipment. However, we do not have, um, as of 2006, there wasn't any corroborated evidence to be able to say that he actually reached the playground. 
if we compare that with um, Bruce's statement um, and time frame of noting that he's missing, we're looking at around a 10 minute time frame in which plus or minus, you know, a couple of minutes kind of thing of when he goes missing. And so that means that when we're thinking about the abductor, we are thinking about two things. One is a matter of whether or not this is a crime of opportunity or whether or not it's a crime in which Michael was being targeted very specifically. Irrespective of whether or not it was opportunity or he was targeted, the offender in this situation would have been well prepared. Dr. Castaldi believes given the short time frame in which Michael goes missing, whomever took him knew the location and was prepared to be unobtrusive. We have a very short period of time. So what we can um, reasonably consider is that that person would have been very prepared, was very unassuming to the, um, the general area, because when we go back and look at people's statements or eyewitness um, uh, information, um, nobody's seeing anything out of the ordinary per se within that parking lot and in that time frame. And so we see somebody who is of similar age to everyone else. It's possibly more than one person, right? So um, I think it's important not to just consider it being one person or being one male. Um, it could be a male or female, it could be two females, it could be more than one person. However, the key is, is that they're blending in. And what's more, given the speed and preparation required, Dr. Castaldi suggests it's important to consider previous contact between Michael and his abductor and the possibility Michael was specifically targeted. It's a question I will return to repeatedly in Missing Michael. Is Michael targeted, or is this a crime of opportunity? The evidence that existed in 2006, looking at it, did not support either direction. When you're looking at a crime of opportunity, it's important to recognize that while the victim might be a situation of opportunity, the scene itself doesn't necessarily have to be uh, um, that of opportunity, meaning that there can be considerable planning that goes into place for a particular scene. And a scene can be picked by an offender based on accessibility and vulnerability of uh, potential victims, right? So what is my accessibility? What is my risk as offender to be able to do an abduction in this area? And what is um, my access to people who are vulnerable? Here's Dr. Castaldi's thoughts on what the intersection between Michael and an abductor could have looked like. So what we can state comfortably is that he was walking across the parking lot. We cannot confirm that he actually reached the playground equipment. So if we end up saying that, and we say that the intersection between the offender or offenders um, and Michael was in the parking lot, then we have to think about what that would look like and think about an offender reducing risk for themselves and precautionary measures. And precautionary measures are literally that, is about efforts that are made to avoid detection, efforts to hamper or distract an investigation. And so this is where we end up saying that in the parking lot, we don't have testimony from, or statements, I should say, from witnesses indicating that he was, you know, dragged into a vehicle or there was a scuffle or there was something odd um, or even witnessing him coming across the parking lot, but not seeing him actually get to a certain point. You want to be thinking about what time, at what point where there, there was that intersection and, and how did it occur without people identifying it? Michael is only four when he vanishes. He's just a little guy. 
most stranger child abductions involve older children and mostly girls. But Michael's age and size could also be a factor. When you end up having a, um, offenders, even if their um, their target group is normally older, so let's say, for example, uh, a teen or an adult, you still have some offenders who do not have a pedophilic background, do not have a history of targeting children, will get to a point where they may choose to assault or offend a child because of accessibility. So even if it's not that direct piece, the idea of size, vulnerability, being able to, the ease with which an adult can um, take over a child is an important factor to consider. Was Michael targeted or was this an opportunistic event? It's a question investigators, too, have returned to again and again. If we were to consider the idea of targeting Michael, we no more have evidence that he was known or unknown to the offender. So if we take the perspective of fleshing out and determining a known person, and once again, we have to think about if there is no identifying evidence that there was a struggle or aggression that occurred in the parking lot, which was witnessed by people, then we have to look, consider the possibility that the um, person or persons was familiar to him, in which he would uh, be agreeable to leave the setting or go in a vehicle or what, what that might look like. We have to consider that factor. The other piece, once again, the time frame speaks to not only about the planning of the offender, because within the, the ease and quickness in which he goes missing from the point of their arrival, um, but then also if he is a known person, what, what would that look like? What sort of coercion might be or manipulation might have occurred here to be able to have him be able to engage or go with them to, you know, walk their dog somewhere or go to another space? What we do know is that within a 10-minute time frame, he wasn't able to be found in that space. What would allow for that ease to occur? And so one of which is, is not only the planning piece, uh, but in the absence of aggression or violence or dragging away, then we want to consider about the that person being known. As he consults on the file, Dr. Castaldi is struck by how well-prepared Michael's abduction would have been. What's also powerful when we think about preparedness of, of the offender or offenders is that there was such a strong canvassing of the area. I mean, immediately you're, I mean, when do you have the opportunity to have 50 plus volunteers immediately um, assisting you in searching that know him, you know, not, not just strangers at the mall saying, hey, look, can you help me? We're talking, you know, team members, people that are familiar to him, canvassing the area, looking in, in spaces. And when you end up having that, and and, and then also the, the, the media, the coverage that was happening thereafter, it provides an argument to be able to say that he was extracted from the general area, you know, greater than 30 miles kind of thing, right? Um, and when I say that, I'm referring to the idea that uh, geographically we see, once again, if we're abused by people that know us and our acquaintances, they're in the general area, they're in general vicinity. They're not going, you know, you know, grand long distances unless it's otherwise planned. And just given the, the volume of people that were involved, it, it's remarkable that there was uh, no identification, no trace, even in the, the days following of, of seeing uh, him or someone somewhere or even having conversations with someone thereafter, right? Um, 
it becomes remarkable. A big part of what Dr. Castaldi is asked to consider is the threshold by which someone should move from a person of interest to a suspect. But he's living in Chicago back when this consultation is going on. And he isn't able to participate in interviews with the persons of interest. At various points over the years, police have talked publicly about having suspects in the Dunahee case. Early on, they described 25 active suspect files. Some of the detectives I interview tell me the problem is too many suspects, but very few of these people have ever been identified publicly. In the next few episodes, I'll delve into some specific individuals. But first, a caution to those who know and love Michael. It will be difficult to hear these men discussed in possible connection with Michael's disappearance. Some have been convicted of horrible crimes. Some are deceased. But no one has ever been charged in Michael Dunahee's case. Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyse each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. As I begin to research Michael Dunahee's story, one of the only names I find publicly linked to Michael is a man named Vernon Seitz. Vern was a barber in Milwaukee. And but for the circumstances of his death, Vern might have lived and died without anyone taking much notice. But when Vern dies suddenly in his home, that changes. Police find him dead. And they also find child pornography, bondage devices, books about cannibalism, and posters of missing kids, including Michael Dunahee, and a map of Millstream Park, which apparently looks like the Millstream Road area not far from where Michael disappears. Prior to his death, Mr. Seitz had made a confession to his psychiatrist, Dr. Virginia Fetter. He tells her of his involvement in the murder of two boys in the late 1950s, and he urges her to contact the police. This all happens just weeks before his death. I call Dr. Fetter, and to my surprise, she agrees to speak with me about her late patient. Dr. Fetter treated Mr. Seitz for 11 and a half years. Here's how she describes him. He wasn't a very attractive man. He, he, he had just ordinary looks and he was short. But he had the ugliest smile. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen anybody who had such an ugly smile. Uh, French is my mother tongue and in French you call that un rictus. I don't know what the word is in English. Rictus is a totally dis distorted smile. And, you know, you would describe that of a murderer, of some very evil, wicked, terrible person. 
uh, you'd use the word rictus. Vernon's smile was hideous, sort of asymmetrical and absolutely hideous. I speak with Dr. Fetter on a number of occasions. But this is our first phone call, and it was one of the first ways she describes Vern Seitz. I don't think I've ever heard anyone described in a less flattering way. She says he used to dress like a hick, so no one would rob him. But that he had means. He'd inherited some money and owned his own barbershop. She tells me that Vern was, without a doubt, her most challenging patient. He was referred to her by his primary care physician and was extremely anxious. And even though he died in December 2008, she still keeps his voluminous files. As I say, I've never done away with his file. Uh, he was, you know, he was so unusual for me. You know, one doesn't like to think of people as being psychopaths. Extremely bad prognosis. <laughs> there is no cure for psychopathy. Dr. Fetter had a complicated relationship with Vernon Seitz. She was fascinated by his personality disorder. But she also described her patient as a committed racist. And he told her he was a pedophile. That he liked children. And he immediately asked, added that he didn't act on it because he knew he would get into terrible trouble legally. He made it clear that he wouldn't do it out of self-preservation. You may not act out as a pedophile. If you, if you want to collect pretty pictures or other pictures of naked boys, well, that's perhaps called the child pornography. I guess that's not all right either. But then what's pornography? You know, a painting. I mean, he, he had an oil painting. He brought it to my office and showed me a, a rather large oil painting of a naked boy. That was a copy of some fairly well-established uh, old master. I think to show me that he was capable of uh, a good reproduction. Seitz tells Dr. Fetter he had a significant childhood trauma, that he had been abducted when he was 12. The guy who abducted Vernon from the zoo, disappearing his cabin at the zoo, showed a gun to him in the car under a newspaper. He made him strip. He was in the trunk of the car and was being threatened with being drowned. He had the ability to find missing children. He didn't specify. He just said that he had this ability like a gift. Well, he met with families and talked to them and not much happened, but he, I guess he had some kind of positive feelings from a sense what was a deception. In news accounts, Jacob Wetterling's mother confirms that Seitz had come to visit her twice after her son's abduction, claiming to be a psychic and wishing to talk to her about her son. However, forensic analysis of Seitz's possessions found nothing to link him to that case. And in 2016, a man named Danny Heinrich confessed to Jacob Wetterling's abduction and murder. So it would seem that Seitz was not involved in Jacob Wetterling's abduction and murder. But he told his psychiatrist he had been involved in three other murders, including the two from the late 1950s. Well, there's the incident from that he claims from childhood when he was 11 that he was forced to shoot another boy who he was 11 or 12 and the other boy was 14 and he was forced to pull the trigger. After years of treating Vernon Seitz, Dr. Fetter determines she doesn't want him as a patient any longer. Psychiatrists have the, have the right to stop working with people for 
various reasons, sometimes rather pet, you know, not profound reasons. But we have the right to say, you missed three sessions, that's it. That's very banal reason, a common reason. That is the most common reason in vote. But this kind of really uh, appalling racism, is equal opportunity racist, Jews, uh, blacks, Hispanics, Muslims, all of them. That's what made me want to get rid of it. I didn't want to listen to that. You can't do patients any good if you don't like them. The fact of the matter is that a psychiatrist cannot be really helpful to a patient that she dislikes. But then, during the session, when Dr. Fetter is stealing herself to tell her patient she no longer wants to treat him, Vern makes a sudden and disturbing admission, confessing to another crime, this time telling her he hired an assassin to kill someone who had broken into his home. Put down your, put down your pen, Dr. Fetter. So I put down my pen, and he tells me that Tony... That's how he told me immediately, Tony owed me. Now, God only knows what this owed me means, but anyway, Tony owed me, and for $500, bam, that's pretty scary. I think he, he probably hung out with some very distasteful people. And that story of hiring an assassin, revealed at the moment when Dr. Fetter has decided she doesn't want Vern as a patient any longer, well, Dr. Fetter takes that admission as a threat. As I said, I, I was intimidated. I didn't want to be on the wrong side of Vernon Sites. So Dr. Fetter carries on seeing Mr. Sites, and up until his death, he never misses an appointment. Then, two weeks before he dies, he asks her to call the police about the involvement with the murder of two boys, which she does. I don't know why he wanted to do that, but he asked me. So in his presence, I called the police and they found no evidence of anything that he had mentioned. And then, just weeks later, Vernon Seitz is dead. Officially, Vernon Seitz died of natural causes. But that is not how Dr. Fetter sees it. I think he probably took an overdose. He had cardiac problems and especially since it was staged. You know, you don't drop dead of a myocardial infarction with all this staging around you. I mean, if you drop dead, you drop dead. It, it was staged. He was on the floor dead, and he had all these uh, evidence of uh, his taste in, por- in, por- in child pornography uh, around him. And it is those items the police find in his home, the evidence of child pornography, the missing posters, including one of Michael Dennehy, that raise questions as to whether Vernon Seitz could have been guilty of more than just fantasizing about little boys. You see, when he died, uh, a number of families were hoping that maybe he had something to do with the disappearance of their children. But, for instance, I don't think, well, nothing was found in the place where he lived, certainly not any little bodies or bones or skeletons. It's unusual for a psychiatrist to speak so openly about a patient. And I asked Dr. Fetter about why she has chosen to speak to me about Mr. Seitz. Oh, I'm just being nice. Being nice to you because you want to, you would like some information, so I am 
sharing it, and hopefully I won't get into trouble because, as a, as is well known, the fact of the death of a patient does not eliminate eliminate the the uh, consideration of confidentiality. And that was where I thought I would leave things with Dr. Fetter and Mr. Seitz. But then Dr. Fetter calls me back twice. Good afternoon. This is Dr. Victoria Fetter calling you back. It so happens that my one o'clock patient was involved in something very urgent and couldn't speak to me. So um, I took the opportunity to look up the records of Vernon Seitz which I have three uh, folders of. I saw him from 1997 to 2009 when he died. Well, here's a, a letter from him, handwritten, rather nice handwriting. Um, anyway, th- there's a lot here, and perhaps uh, some of it would be of interest to you. One of the records has attached to it Milwaukee Police Department Criminal Investigation Bureau, Matthew Goldberg, Detective. So I will be free now uh, until two o'clock when my next patient is uh, is due. Goodbye. Next. Good afternoon. This is Victoria Fetter again. Uh, I've just found a letter which I had seen before since we've been talking. Uh, written by uh, Vernon Seitz. It isn't addressed to anybody in particular. There isn't a date, but it was possibly around 2005. Uh, If you would be interested in this letter, it's rather elegant handwriting, a whole page. I would be glad to have it uh, sent to you digitally or mail it to you. If you either you give me your email address or your snail mail address, and then again maybe you wouldn't be interested, or maybe you'd want me to read it to you before I sent it to you. Anyway, I thought it could be of, of some interest. He does mention the abduction. But when I return Dr. Fetter's call, she tells me her lawyer has now advised her that she should stop talking to me, and that she should not send the letter she had previously offered to send. Turns out, after speaking with me, she calls her lawyer to ask his advice about releasing the document. I speak with Art Beck, a Milwaukee lawyer representing Dr. Fetter, to make the case on why I believe this letter should be released to me. He tells me the concern that is raised is physician-patient privilege and that it does not die with the death of the patient. The document was given to Dr. Fetter in the course of a session, a treatment session. And we don't know whether anyone could raise an objection to the release of such a document. He tells me that the state of Wisconsin's Department of Professional Services has a very different view of what constitutes privileged communications, and it could be a violation. And that's why he's advised her not to release the document. He has less concerns about the conversation, as some of that information had been previously disclosed when Vern died. But at no time have any of those documents been released. Documents which he describes as a vast treasure trove. He goes on to tell me the only way I can access that letter would be if Vern's living relatives waive his privilege, 
or if the investigators in Michael's case convinced the court in Wisconsin that there could be evidence in the document of probative value, enough to break the privilege and release the information. I would love to hear from relatives of Mr. Seitz and encourage any of them to please get in touch at laura at laurapalmer.ca. I also reached out to the Milwaukee Police Department to try and get a handle on what was done at the time to rule out Vern Seitz in relation to Michael Dennehy's case. I learned the main investigators are no longer Milwaukee police officers and that the files on this case are handwritten and archived in hard copy. The police spokesperson who writes back to me notes that investigations into a person that is deceased are very difficult as you cannot question or get an explanation as to why he had posters of missing children and other content. I also raised Sites with Detective Al Cochran, who had conduct of the file at the time of Sites' death. Yes, yes, I remember that tip. And again, working with the uh, Milwaukee police at the time, I did reconnect, like I connected with them. We exchanged as much file information as possible. I, you know, obviously, because he had passed away, we weren't able to totally 100%. But for, I, I believe, if I can recall correctly, that if we looked at the time frame in 1991 and looking back through what records, financial records, or um, anything that would have been going on in Mr. Sykes's life at the time, it would have been difficult for him to be on Vancouver Island at the time. You know, the, the Michael Dunahy poster, which, I mean, this, this, this file has worldwide recognition. You know, when a big anniversary, we'd get called up. I get calls from England, from Germany, from the US. Like it was, and, and that poster might've been, you know, for someone like Mr. Sykes and his known uh, background, like sort of, uh, you know, the one that got away, they would have that. And, uh, but again, everything possible that could have been done was done to try to make sure, you know, like what, what we could do, we tried to. Not, couldn't say, in my recollection again, I, I can't say that we were able to 100% eliminate them, but uh, everything was done uh, by that agency um, and other agencies in the U.S. that was that were involved, uh, and and us that, to eliminate him. I think about how family and friends of the Dennehy family describe the efforts to spread those posters of Michael far and wide. Given the hundreds of thousands of Michael Dunahee posters that were printed and how widely they were distributed around the world, perhaps it's not so strange that one could wind up in the home of Vernon Seitz. And given that Seitz believed he had a gift for finding missing children, that too might explain why he had the poster in his possession. Still, I would like to know what information is contained in the letter Seitz wrote, the one Dr. Fetter called me about, twice. She was my most challenging patient. Not a very nice character, to be honest. <laughs> I'm Laura Palmer. This is Island Crime, Season 3, Missing Michael. In the next episode, I'll introduce you to a dangerous offender 
still serving time in a Canadian jail. A man who says he knows who is responsible for Michael's disappearance. And now, a request from one of Michael's heroes. Michael Dunahy loved the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Back when Michael was a little guy, loving the magic of the turtles, I had the privilege of being the voice of Michelangelo. I'm Townsend Coleman, a voice actor, and one of the many people who want answers in Michael's case. The turtles were crime fighters who believed in justice. If you have any information about Michael, please head to michaeldunahy.ca and click on the Report a Tip button. Hey, it's Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. I'm here to tell you how to get ad-free content and early access to episodes right now. All you need to do is subscribe to Island Crime Plus on Apple Podcasts. When you subscribe, you get to be first to hear new episodes, all ad-free. Pop down into the show notes for a direct link to subscribe. If you like Island Crime, you'll love Island Crime Plus.